You know, I may not have been around as long as some of you have uh, lived on this green earth for as long as some of you, but there is one thing that I am confident in saying as a fact after my 27 years, and that is a construction project Maybe there is, when, when it comes to a construction project, there is a strong, perhaps there is even a inevitability that that construction project is not going to finish on time. Have you realized this in your life as, as you drive down the road, as, as you have built a house or as you have observed uh, businesses and, and corporations build things, and, and maybe we got a lot of people that have been in construction before, and, and you've been a part of it, and you've seen it firsthand, but there's almost one certain thing about a construction project, and that's that it's not going to finish on time. I mean, there, there's, there's so many different variables when it comes to construction projects. There are so many different facets that, that all have to align so that a construction project can be completed in general, much less on time. And there's a lot of reasons for this. There, when it comes to construction projects, there's so much red tape that you have to go through in order for that project to be completed or even for that project to be started sometimes. Sometimes the red tape of getting a project started and getting all of the approvals and all the permits, it becomes such a headache that the project is impossible to complete before it's even finished. And sometimes we see that happen in our, in, in our life and in, in our families and in our businesses and things like that. Just think about all the different people that have to have their fingerprints and have to have their influence and, and have to be consulted on a construction project. You've got, you've got tradesmen like plumbers and electricians and framers and bricklayers and, and painters. Uh, you've got engineers, you've got architects, you've got foremans, you've got project administrators, you've got construction managers, you've got uh, the, the executives like the CEO, and you've got all these different people You've got homeowners that, that are always causing problems. Where are you at, George Reese? He ain't here to amen. He may be doing security, but I know he'll agree with that. But you've got all these different people that, that are involved, and because there are so many different people involved, each one of those people are depending on the other to get their job done. Because if they don't get their job done, there's no way they can start on their job. They have to depend on each other to complete their job before they can even begin to do theirs. And by the way, like we just mentioned, all of those people are depending on the people with the red tape before they can even begin any of it. But then on top of all of that, on top of all of those different peoples and all those different facets to a construction project is weather, <laughs> right? Weather. I mean, how, how, how serious is the issue of weather when it comes to some of these construction projects? Uh, rain comes, and so the framers can't come, and so the uh, roofing people can't come, and so that means that you're delayed a whole other week, and that means you're delayed a whole other two weeks, and that, and that goes on and on 
and on sometimes with construction projects. And that's just the beginning. I, I'm, I'm not even in construction, but that's just the tip of the iceberg of what happens when it comes to construction projects that seem to go on and on. And it's at that point when, when a project continues to just go on and on and on that the person that has paid for the project, the, the homeowner or the business owner or whoever it might be, it's at that point that that person starts to get restless and they start to say, how long is this going to take? You know, one of the most frustrating things is when you ask that question, you get the response with an indefinite answer, right? You've been waiting all this time and you give that, how much longer is this going to take? And the person can't really give you a, a definitive answer. And when construction stalls like this, when construction becomes stagnant, we know of so many different cases that in so many different circumstances where the project will get canceled altogether. You ever seen that happen? You ever seen so many different red tape issues or so many different uh, uh, construction issues and so many different problems that, that the person paying for it or the construction people themselves just simply say that this headache is not worth all the trouble and so sometimes the the project gets canceled altogether in our study the restoration movement perhaps that's what we're talking about tonight you see this restoration movement that this this restoration process that we've been talking about and and we've been studying and we've been looking at for so long so many different weeks we've been talking about the process all all the way back through history that that has brought us to this time tonight and the question is has the restoration stopped the the, the question is has has all of the headache and, and all of the problems and, and all the different obstacles that they had to face, has, has it caused the restoration to, to stop in its tracks and get canceled altogether? You see, because for the next couple of classes in our study to be continued, we're going to be talking about and we're going to be looking at certain things that keep the restoration from being continued in our lives today. In fact, we're going to be talking about four things that stop us from continuing to restore the church to God's intent. We're going to be talking about four things that stop us from devoting ourselves and devoting our lives to the restoration plea. We're going to be talking about four things that have caused the movement to stall. Four things that made the restoration movement the stagnation movement. And tonight we're going to be covering two out of those four excuses in our next time together we'll be covering the other two. But before we even get into our lesson tonight let's ask ourselves a question. Let's ask the question that perhaps someone is already thinking in the room. Isn't the restoration complete? When it comes to, to, to the restoration movement, haven't we, haven't we come to a pretty good place? Ha, 
haven't we arrived to, to a certain place where we can look and we, we can be pretty satisfied with, with where we are as, as a church and where we are as a brotherhood? We ask ourselves the question, why does the restoration need to be continued? What do we see in the New Testament that we aren't practicing or obeying today? Haven't we already restored the ancient order of New Testament patterns? I think sometimes that's, that's the, some of those questions are, you can understand where they're coming from, right? Because you are very proud of, of the church and you're proud of, of, of your congregation and your leadership and, and, and how much you've grown as a Christian and, and all of those different things. But, but if you remember back to many, many weeks ago, we talked about the destination for our restoration. You remember that? If you are with us all those weeks ago, we talked about what is the destination that we are restoring the church to? You know, we talk about this restoration movement. Well, what, what is the goal? What, where, where is the destination for such a restoration? And we established all those weeks ago that we're not talking about the church of the 1970s. We established many weeks ago that, that we're not talking about restoring the church to the time of the restoration movement that we've been studying, the time of Campbell and Stone. We established back then we're not talking about restoring the church to the time of the Reformation. And we even established in that lesson that we're not even talking about restoring the church to the time of the first century. Because even by the first century, in many cities, in many places, the Lord's church was already off the rails. We established back then, and we, we remind ourselves tonight that the destination for the restoration must be what God intended for the church to be in the first place. The destination of our restoration, this, this whole process that we've been building upon and leading towards all this time is nothing short of what God intended for the church to be. And that intention can be found in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5 and verse 27. If you're a highlighter, if you're an underliner, you have, don't have this one highlighted or underlined, you're missing something. This is the purpose for the church. This is the very intention that God had for the church from its institution. From the foundation of the world, before the world was even built, before the world was even framed, before God even said, let there be light, He knew that this would be His intent for His church. Paul says that He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So tonight, when we're talking about the church that God intends for us to be, we're, we're, God intends for the church to be blameless. He intends for the church to be wrinkleless. He intends for the church to be spotless. He intends for the church to be blameless and blemishless. 
And he says, in order to be those things, in order to be without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle, he says, you have to be holy. That's what it takes to be the church that God intended. We have to be holy. And if we are holy, if we are without spot, if we are without wrinkle, if we are without blemish, all those different things he says, he says, then you can be the glorious church. ESV says, a church in splendor. That's what God intended for the church to be, and that's what we're aspiring for. That's that's what this restoration process has been leading us to. And the question we have to ask ourselves tonight is, are we that glorious church? Are we without spot? Are we without wrinkle? Are, Are we holy and without blemish? When we think about this, the, the only time that, that we can say the church has been restored, the only time that, that, that we can look at ourselves and look around and say, you know what, we've restored the church, is when we can say this, th- these things about ourselves. Then and only then can, can we look around and, and be satisfied with, with where we are in the restoration process. Someone says, Ben, we'll never get there. We'll never, we'll never reach that. We're human beings. We're, we're, we're so imperfect. There's no way for us to reach this destination. We'll never get there. We'll never be holy enough. We'll never be without blemish. We'll never be without spot or wrinkle. We're human beings. Bingo. That's exactly what we've been talking about throughout this entire class because the restoration is to be continued the restoration is an ever forever it's going to forever be an everlasting process and an everlasting effort to become the church that God wants us to be it is a continual process in aspiring to become the very image of Jesus Christ. It is a process that continually makes us try to become a suitable body for our perfect head. What I mean by that is we have a perfect head of the church. Colossians 1 and verse 18, Jesus Christ is the head of the church, the body. Jesus Christ is a perfect head with an imperfect body. And our goal for the restoration is to become such a body that is an acceptable resting place for the head. And so we look at this passage and we think about the restoration process and instead of continuing that process, there are certain things in our lives that keep us from continuing. There are things in our lives that that keep us from restoring and keep us from being that glorious church. You know, we've taken quite a journey to get here tonight. Throughout this study, we have taken many different uh, uh, studies and we've we've tried to to weave them all together and, and have them have a coherent 
uh, lesson and, and a message for us to take away each night into our lives. And it's all led us to this point tonight. And, and the journey has been very, very fascinating to me. And I hope, I hope to you as well if you've been with us throughout it. In phase one, we, we talked about the introduction to the movement and we saw the biblical foundation for restoration. And in phase two, we, we talked about the foundation and how at the very beginning, all the way back all those many years ago, things went off the rails. And in phase three, we talked about the, the foundation, or excuse me, the formation of our movement and how those different prolific things happen in our history that, that brings us and, and helps shine light on why we are the way we are tonight. And then in phase four, we started out by talking about the instruction of the movement and, and pattern theology and, and what the recipe is and what the formula is in, 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 in order for us to interpret Scripture and understand Scripture today. And so we looked at four different issues that the restoration had to face and, and how they instructed when it came to those issues. And then last week, it led us to phase five of our study, the division of the movement, where we saw not just a church split, but an entire brotherhood split in the year 1906. And tonight, we start our final phase, phase six of the movement, which is the continuation of the movement. In our next couple of classes together, I'm going to have to ask you to do me a favor. I'm going to have to ask you to, to, to join me in some honesty. I'm going to have to ask you, as well as myself, to be honest with our state, with where we are in the church today. I'm asking you and I'm asking myself to honestly look at the brotherhood at large and yes, you and me here at the Buford Church as we consider these four different things that hinder the restoration from continuing. That, that take this great God-honoring process, this, this biblical process of restoration and brings it to a complete halt. You know, in many different parts of life, I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes there's just, there's just not an answer for why we do certain things. Sometimes when it, when, when it comes to the way we, this is in any form of life, but let's talk about us spiritually, let's talk about the church. There's not a specific book, chapter, and verse for why we do a certain thing. But yet we find ourselves doing it all the time. And because we don't have a book, chapter, and verse, because we don't have a, a necessary uh, true focal point to show someone, we can't explain why we do certain things the way we do them. And when this happens, what do we chalk it up to? tradition when you can't explain why it is you do a certain thing it is profit it's, it's probable it's, it's, it's possibly because it's simply just tradition and tonight the first 
the first hindrance to the continuation of the restoration that we're going to be talking about is tradition. And when we think about tradition, we, we, we hear people say, well, that's how we've always done it. You ever hear someone say that? Hey, that's how we've always done it. Well, that you hear someone say that that's, that's the way things always have been. You hear somebody say, if it was good enough for my mama, it should be good enough for me. Good enough for my granddad. It was good enough for his dad. And, and all these continual uh, processes in our minds, it's, it's, why shouldn't it be good enough for me? In fact, you know, I think Bradley might understand this one. Where I'm from, we say, if it ain't broke, come on, don't fix it. I think I've said that before. Maybe I say that too much. But that's what we think about tradition sometimes, right? We, we think to ourselves, hey, if this isn't broken, why does it need fixed? When it comes to tradition, it's worked for so long. It's, it's, it's served us well in certain aspects, so so why does it even need to be discussed? Why does it need to be talked about? And so let's just say, I want to say this up front. Before we even delve into tradition, I want to say up front that sometimes, in fact, many times, maybe even a lot of times, there's a good reason for why we do things the way we do them. Many times, and, and, and a lot of times, when it comes to traditions, there's, there's a lot of good reasons why we do those certain things that way. There's a lot of, of sound reasons of, of why we do that thing that certain way. A lot of times, tradition can be a good thing. And a lot of times, there is a profound and, and perfect explanation as to why things are done in a certain way. However, sometimes things are tradition simply for tradition's sake. Sometimes the comfort that tradition offers us supersedes the pattern that we see in God's Word. Sometimes that tradition crosses over from our willingness to honor God into our attempt to honor our man-made tradition. Brethren, when we start to believe that our traditions are on the same par with God's Word, alarm bells should be going off. When we place our certain traditions on the same par with God's Word, that's when we start to look like the enemies of the New Testament. When we give preference to certain tradition over clear New Testament practices, we start to sound like the enemies of the New Testament. When we die on the hill of the letter of the law, and ignore the spirit of why that law was given, we start to become the enemies of the New Testament. 
Someone says, Ben, who, who are you talking about? Who's the enemy of the New Testament? There's a lot of enemies in the New Testament, a lot, a lot of antagonists in the New Testament. They're, 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 you can talk about the Roman Empire, and, and you can talk about Satan himself, and, and you can talk about Judas, perhaps. Maybe someone sees him as an enemy, and, and you can talk about a lot of different enemies and a lot of different antagonists throughout the New Testament. But correct me if I'm wrong. I see the Pharisees as perhaps the strongest enemy in the New Testament. Because it was the Pharisees who persecuted Jesus all throughout his ministry and sent him to the cross. Not Rome. He was, he was crucified on a Roman cross, but who sent him there? It was the Pharisees. Correct me if I'm wrong, but, but wasn't it the Pharisees that continually persecuted the church in the book of Acts? It wasn't the Pharisees who sent Saul to persecute the church? The Pharisees put their traditions on par with God's word. The Pharisees gave preference to their traditions over God's word. And the Pharisees died on the hill of the letter of the law while refusing to entertain the spirit of that law. You know, if there was one name that I would never want to be called, you can call me a lot of different names, but if you called me this name, it might be the most offensive thing is to be called a Pharisee. After all the information and all the knowledge that we have of God's Word, and, and you look at what the Pharisees were about and, and what Matthew chapter 23 says about the Pharisees and what Jesus says about the Pharisees throughout His ministry, the Pharisee, uh, being a Pharisee, is the very last thing I would ever want to be called. And yet sometimes in the Lord's church, that's exactly what I think some Christians are. Sadly, sometimes in the Lord's church, even among the Lord's church, there are people who are way more close to a Pharisee than they are a Christian. You know, the Pharisees, they, they were so blinded by their self-absorbed tradition that they could not see that the Son of God was in their midst. Yeah. They, they were so blinded by these traditions and these laws and these boundaries that they had put up that, that they couldn't even see Jesus. And sadly, many Christians today are guilty of the same. Sadly, sometimes I am guilty of the same. Let's camp out in Matthew chapter 15. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. We'll be reading a, a, many different verses Jesus' exchange with the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 15 and verse 1, it says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why, why do you also transgress the commandment of God? 
because of your tradition. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need no honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Man, what a start to this exchange. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus talking to these Pharisees, these Pharisees from Jerusalem. And can you imagine just in verse 1, the setting up of this scene, can you imagine how annoyed Jesus must have been when these Pharisees came to him with that that energy, came to him with that attitude in verse 1 with this question? Here we have the Son of God, the the Word incarnate, the the one who was there from the beginning of time, the, the one who was there to witness all of human history. He was there to watch Mount Sinai in the, in the institution of the Mosaic Law. He, he was there from the beginning. He was also there when those Pharisees created those man-made traditions, like washing your hands. Mark chapter 7, if you want a reference, so you go over there and talk a little bit more about the tradition the Pharisees had. Same story, same account. But here we have the, 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 the one who was there to witness it all. And then you've got these self-absorbed Pharisees who accuse his disciples of not following the stuff that they made up. Not, not, not that they weren't following God's word, but, but that they weren't following the stuff that the elders had made up. That stuff that the Pharisees had made up. And Jesus responds with, okay, you want to talk about transgression? They say they transgressed the elders' law. We want to talk about transgression? We can talk about transgression. We can talk about how y'all have been transgressing the commandment of God. How you have transgressed the law of God in favor for your traditions every day. At the end, wow, what a statement. He says, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Let's continue in the text. In verse 7, Jesus says, Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus is saying is, is when someone when someone takes their tradition and they pose it as doctrine when someone takes their tradition and puts it on the same level of a command from God they are nothing more than a hypocrite Oof. Jesus says, hypocrites. He says, their mouth may sound like they are right. They may sound like they are logical. They may even sound righteous. But he says here in this passage, inside, 
what's actually inside of these people, what's, what's actually going on in the heart of this kind of person is they, can't, they couldn't be further from God. They couldn't be further from Christ. And that's exactly what he says about the Pharisees here. And that's exactly what you can see in some even to this day. Because when your motive is not in line with God's will, we've talked about motive the past few weeks. Jesus says right here in Matthew chapter 15, your worship is in vain. And you know what happens when your worship is in vain? When your worship, the, the very thing that connects us to God, when that's in vain, the whole rest of it's in vain too. When that worship, that element of worship is in vain, then your whole claim at, to be a follower of God, that's also in vain. Continue in the text, verse 10. Bible says, when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth this defiles a man then his disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? but he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. You got to love the disciples here, right? You got to love the disciples in this passage. They come to Jesus and they're like, hey, uh, I don't know if you realize this, but that was pretty offensive. I don't know if you realize this, but, you know, those Pharisees, they kind of run the show in this town. I don't know if you know this, but, but they're looked upon as the religious elite in our day. And, and what you said was, I mean, that was pretty hardcore. I mean, that was, that was pretty offensive. That, that, I mean, do you think you went a little far when you said that? Are you aware that maybe it's... You need to dial it back a little. And what does Jesus do? You know what? You're right. I'm not in the business of offending people. You're right. Let me dial it back. No. Jesus doubles down. Jesus doubles down, triples down on the fact of where the true uh, place that these Pharisees are in. What does he say in the text? He said, these men, they're not planting seeds from God's word. They're planting seeds of their own tradition. And anything that is planted that is not from God is going to be uprooted. Man. Every one of these seeds of tradition is useless in the sight of God. And then he says, they themselves, they are blind, and they are leading a bunch of people who are also blind. And that very blindness is going to make both of them fail and going to make both of them fall. Jesus is saying, listen up, disciples. If you don't want to fall into the same ditch that these Pharisees are going in, then you'll quit giving such credence and superiority to the traditions. 
Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. And there Paul says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Brethren, when we place tradition over God, Colossians says we're cheating ourselves. You're cheating yourself. When you place tradition above God, you are cheating only yourself because you are exchanging and you are substituting a faith in God with a faith in tradition. question I have for us tonight, the question I have for me myself tonight as I look at Colossians chapter 2 is do I live my life according to the traditions of men or according to Christ? Colossians 2.8 says and not according to Christ. Am I guilty of that in my life? Brethren, tonight we're talking about things that hinder the continuance of the restoration. And the first thing that I, I, I can think of when it comes to what makes the restoration process halt is tradition. The second thing tonight that we're going to be talking about is comparison. The second thing that I believe hinders the continuing of the restoration set forth by God is comparison. How easy is it for us to compare ourselves to other people in life? You ever catch yourself doing this? You know, I believe in this day and age it may be harder than at any other time in human history not to compare yourself to someone else. In our day and age there is almost no other way around it. We are constantly tempted to compare ourselves with other people. It's almost inevitable in our day. Every day seems to be a fight not to compare ourselves with someone. Maybe they have a nicer car than I have, or, or maybe they live in a bigger house than I have, or, or maybe they have a better job than I have. Or maybe we say to ourselves, well, they're married, so they must be better than I am. Or maybe we say to ourselves, they have kids, so that makes them better than I am. Or maybe we say to ourselves, they have all the things figured out that I have yet to figure out, so that makes them better than me. You know, it's almost impossible to look at social media and not compare the lives with those friends on social media. Because all we see on social media is this this, this grandiose appearance. We don't see the actual authentic lives on social media. And so because you are living your life and you see that it's not, a, it's not all sunshine and rainbows, you just assume everybody else's is. It's almost impossible for us not to compare ourselves to others. You know what, though? The church is no stranger to comparison either. 
the church is no stranger to comparison because a lot of times there is a temptation for us to compare ourselves to another congregation up the road or down the street or across town. And when we do that, it's easy for us to tell ourselves, well, we aren't as bad off as them. Well, we, 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 aren't, we aren't as far off as, as they are. At least we aren't as bad off as them. As, at least we haven't started doing blank and blank like they have. And when we do that, what are we doing? We're justifying our own shortcomings, aren't we? We're justifying our shortcomings by pointing out someone else's shortcomings. When we say we aren't as bad off as they are. Man, how sad is that? You ever think about how sad that is, really? I mean, really. It sounds like a petulant teenager. I never was one of those. And I never did the following. But here's an example. You have a bunch of friends. Your friends are doing awful things constantly. Your friends are engaging in, in very you know, illegal activity, smoking or drinking or having premarital relations. And, and, and your parents start to get on to you for what you're doing. Are you kidding me? You don't even know what kids my age are actually doing. You have no idea what my friends are actually doing. If you knew what my friends were doing, there's no way you would get on to me. You should be lucky that I'm as great as I am. I never said any of that. No, I definitely said every word. But how sad is that? How childish is that? But yet sometimes even the church feels that way. And the church talks that way. And the church acts that way. You know what? Falling short can never be justified by more falling short. Alabama logic right there. Falling short can never be justified by more falling short. It makes no sense. Yeah, your friend's caught up doing this or that, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about what you've done and how you have missed the mark. We're talking about what you've done wrong. And it's the same thing with the church. Yes, that congregation down the road is starting doing things that transgress the pattern. What does that have to do with what we're talking about? We're talking about us. We're talking about what we need to focus on. We're talking about what we need to get right. Brethren, for the restoration to continue in our lives, we're going to have to stop being so satisfied with comparing ourselves to congregations down the street. And we're going to have to start comparing ourselves to the actual mark that was set for us. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. Nope, nope, nope. Galatians 1, yep. Galatians 1 and verse 10. Paul says, For do I now persuade men or God? 
Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul's telling the Christians in Galatia, what's your measuring stick? What are you measuring yourself up against? Are you trying to measure yourself up against the approval of other Christians? Or even the, the approval of, 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 of other men, other human beings? Or are you measuring yourself up to the fullness of the stature of the nature of the full image of Christ? That question, that's why he would say later in Galatians chapter 6, flip over a couple of pages. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, Paul says, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work. And then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Paul says, stop comparing yourself to everyone else. It's easy for us to walk away satisfied with where we are when the measurement we are measuring against is another human. I can always find someone who's shorter than me, bigger than me, uglier than me, dumber than me. I can always find that. What is our measurement? It's easy for us to have our ego inflated and think that we are some grand somebody when we set the bar here. God set the bar up here. It's a whole lot easier to face that measuring stick. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 17, Paul says, But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Paul says if you're going to glory, you better be glorying in the Lord. You better not be glorying in yourself. He who commends himself and talks braggadociously about himself and, and talks so highly of himself. Romans, what does Romans say? Don't think too highly of yourself. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, if you are commending yourself, you're, you're not going to be approved of God. The Lord is the one who commends. And then finally, let's turn to probably the keystone passage in all the Bible when it comes to this idea of comparison. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 2, Jesus says, For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in, the, in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I said earlier, this might be the ultimate passage when it comes to the idea of comparison. When it comes to the idea of us comparing ourselves to other people, Jesus warns 
we need to focus on the obstruction in our own eye before we start talking about and thinking about and focusing and calling out the obstruction in our brother's eye or even the obstruction in the world's eye. Instead of, of focusing on how awful that church is down the road, why don't we start to focus on how we can improve? Why don't we start to focus on how, how us individually can improve? How, how I can improve tonight. How I can improve tomorrow. But no, let's just keep, let's keep comparing ourselves to an inadequate standard. Tonight, as we bring this lesson home in our lives, let's try to make it matter. Let's try to, let's try to think about what we can take away. I, I hope there's, there's more than just one thing. But you know what happens when you are so obsessed with tradition? The same thing happens when you're so obsessed with comparison. Did you notice? what those two things have in common? You, did you notice what Jesus said about both groups of people? In Matthew chapter 15 and verse 7, flip over there, what does he call them? What does he call them? He calls them hypocrites. Turn to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 5, what's he call them? He calls them hypocrites. Brethren, where whether we are obsessed with tradition or obsessed with comparison, the result is all too much the same. Jesus calls both of these groups hypocrites. Both of these groups are categorized the same way. They are both categorized as people who are so blind that they cannot see how hypocritical they have become. And tonight we could spend an untold amount of time trying to list some of the traditions that even in the Lord's church we hold near and dear to our hearts. We could spend the same amount of time talking about other congregations in the area. But instead of doing that, why don't we just agree to stop it? Instead of spending so much energy doing those things, why don't we just agree to stop being so obsessed with the thought of what they are doing or what they are not doing and why don't we start thinking about what we should be doing instead of trying to justify our traditions why don't we just stop it and admit they are what they are traditions they are simply traditions Nothing more, nothing less, not inherently wrong, but not inherently right. Sometimes the way we've always done it is done that way for a reason, like we talked about. It may be a scriptural reason, it may be an expedient reason. Other times, we keep doing the same things the same way when it can be done a better way. And I'm not that smart, but 
someone once said, when you do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. That's what they call insanity. Brothers and sisters, when we are presented with a new idea or a new approach or a new song or, or a new ministry or something that we may never have thought of before and we automatically shut it down solely on the idea of this is not how we have always done it. It could be the case that our tradition has trumped what is actually needed at that time to win souls to Christ. Tonight we've talked about two things that are very difficult. We've talked about two things that, that, are, that are difficult for us in our lives to live with. Two things that are almost unavoidable in life. It's almost impossible not to become creatures of tradition. It is also almost impossible to avoid comparison. But if we are ever going to be the restorers of the church that God intended, we've got to let these two things go. What if the reformers that we talked about continued in the tradition of the Catholic Church what if the restorers continued in the tradition that the reformers left them? Where would we be tonight if Stone and Campbell hadn't stopped comparing themselves to the denominations around them and started comparing themselves to the pattern of the New Testament? Tonight, we talk about the continuation of the movement and how tradition and comparison stagnate the process of restoration. But as I said, these aren't the only two things. There is still much to be said, much to be talked about when it comes to things that stall the restoration. But that is to be continued. Let's close in a quick word of prayer. Our dear most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this night that you blessed us with to come together. We pray that it has been beneficial to all of us that we will look into our hearts and be honest with ourselves and think whether or not we have put our tradition above your word. Whether it be in our, our Christian lives or whether it be in worship or, or whether it be all throughout different walks of our Christianity. We pray that we'll observe whether or not we're comparing ourselves to fellow brothers and sisters or comparing ourselves to an inadequate measuring stick we pray that we can all put ourselves up against Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27 as our standard and as our goal for our destination forgive us when we come up short because we are going to it's in Jesus name that we pray amen